Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. We're in the middle of a series in Genesis. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 this week. We did the first half of it last week. This week we're going to look at verses 17 through 26. And so uh, as you get yourself opened up and settled there, whether that's a hard copy or on your phone, I'm going to read our passage for the morning uh, and then we'll jump in. This is Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 17. It says this, Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other named Zalah. Adah bore Jabal, he was the father of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was Jubal, he was the father of all who played the lyre and the flute. Zalah bore Tubal Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for this morning, the opportunity to gather as a church. God, we pray that your spirit would move powerfully here among us. God, would you form us into a people who are increasingly obedient and humble respondent to your word? God, would you help us to see, even in a genealogy, how it is that this passage of scripture is useful, God, for teaching us, for training us in righteousness? God, form us into the image of your son through the power of your spirit in obedience to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what we're going to do over the course of our time in the word this morning. We're gonna frame out Genesis four through six. We're in a new chunk here. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, maybe visiting or sort of visiting, checking out the church or you're here with family, whatever the case might be, we're gonna lay a foundation for Genesis four through six. We're also gonna do like a little recapping of Genesis one through three. So you're here on a great morning because we'll talk about how we got here and what this section is all about. And then... Uh, we're going to work our way through Genesis's first genealogy. Uh, you probably didn't come to church really hoping that we would just talk about a list of names, but here we are. And so we're going to work through the line of Cain, the family of Cain. That's the, the, ge the genealogy we get there in Genesis chapter 4. We're also going to set up, because the last two verses in Genesis 4 set up the family line of Seth. 
And all of Genesis chapter 5 that we're going to look at next week is a list of names from the family line of Seth. So we'll, we'll get that kind of set up. Cain this week, introduce Seth, and then we'll talk about Seth in full and his family next week. The landing place this morning is that against the bleak backdrop of human brokenness, the beauty of God's promises shines brightly. Against the bleak backdrop of human brokenness, the beauty of God's promises shines brightly. Where are we in Genesis? Genesis 1 through 3 sort of functions as a first unit in the biblical narrative. And then Genesis 4 through 6 kind of forms the second unit in the biblical narrative. And so by way of just catching up on where we are, Genesis chapter 1 is the traditional creation account that we talk about when we talk about Genesis. And in it, you get this picture of a big, grand, glorious, transcendent God who's uncreated and infinite. He's independent from anything here on this earth. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He is Trinitarian in his being. And he's sort of laid out before you as this unfathomably large entity, if you will, in the midst of creating the world. And what he does is he creates a universe that he forms and then he fills. And he forms and he fills it as this place where the story or the evidence of his glorious character is going to play out as his purposes and his promises come to pass in the place that he created. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, you've got the culminating act of creation, which is humanity. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you start to see how it is that that big transcendent God relates to that which he created, most notably humans. And so in Genesis chapter 2, as big and transcendent as God is in Genesis chapter 1, he's intimately personal in Genesis chapter 2. And he wants relationship with that which he created. In fact, his name in Genesis chapter 2, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, indicates that he's this covenant God of faithfulness who makes promises with his creation and then acts according to those promises that he makes. Then in Genesis chapter 3, humanity does something unthinkable. Rather than listen to and be obedient to the word of God as given to them, they choose instead to listen to this serpent who represents Satan. And in listening to the serpent and eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin is introduced into the cosmos, like the whole of the universe, but also into our world, and most notably, into humanity. And so what you have in sin is not just a list of behaviors that humanity does, what you have is sin introduced into the very nature of who humanity is. We are broken, and so we do sinful things. It's not just that sin is the behavior, Sin is in our nature. It's part of who we are. And yet, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise that that sin and the serpent who brought it into the world, Satan, will not ultimately win. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that Eve will have a child and the offspring of Eve will ultimately crush the head of the serpent and be victorious over the sin that reigns or seems like it controls this world that we inhabit. And yet, that victory will come through suffering because the serpent will bruise that offspring's heel. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. And then at the end of Genesis, Adam and Eve walk out of the garden. We're told that a cherubim or some number of cherubim are set at the east 
side of the garden and there's this whirling flaming sword that blocks the way to the tree of life. And the picture at the end of Genesis chapter three is of Adam and Eve walking away from the presence of God and ultimately toward death because they no longer have access to the tree of life. Then you get to Genesis chapter four. In Genesis four, five, and six, function is a unit that does something very specific. The next section of Genesis is going to start channeling our focus to where the serpent crusher is going to come from. That's the great promise of the first three chapters of Genesis. One will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis four, five, and six, the author of Genesis, the book of Genesis, starts to tell you, hey, look over here for the serpent crusher. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. But Cain kills Abel. Cain goes from disregarding God's word and his direct admonishment. Cain, sin's desire is for you. It wants to rule you, but you must master it. Cain does not do that. He succumbs to his sin, murders his brother Abel. And in one generation, from Adam and Eve to their sons, Cain and Abel, we see just how far sin has moved in its brazenness and in its ambition. That humanity would go from eating fruit to snuffing out the life of an image bearer. And the juxtaposition there from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 ought to sort of take your breath away as the reader. How could this get so dark so fast? And as a result, by the time you get to the end of the first portion of Genesis chapter 4, obviously Abel can't be the serpent crusher. He's dead. But it also can't be Cain. Because he's cast out of the presence of God to work the ground and to wander the earth. If you've got your Bible open there in front of you, just back up a few verses from where we started reading. This is Genesis 4, starting in verse 13. Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear, since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Catch what happens there. There's a pattern that we ought to see in the way that the Lord God is interacting with humanity. Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God comes to them as they're hiding in the bushes there and he says where are you he moves toward them have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from Cain kills his brother Abel God moves toward Cain where is your brother what is this that you have done God tells Cain you're going to wander the earth work the ground and Cain says oh my punishment is too great for me to bear and what does God do he graciously provides for Cain a mark by which no one will kill him. Cain says, this is, it's too heavy for me to bear this. Someone is gonna want vengeance. They're going to kill me. And God says, I will graciously provide for you a means by which you can live. And he gives a mark to Cain. Cain goes out from the Lord's presence and continues moving eastward which here in the early part of Genesis is an allusion to moving further from the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve sin, they move out of the garden, on the eastern edge of the garden are the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword that are gonna stop them from getting to the tree of life. Cain kills his brother Abel, moves further east, away from the presence of the Lord. But you've still got the question. If it can't be Abel because Abel is dead, 
And if it can't be Cain, because Cain's not physically gone, but now it's like he's sort of spiritually gone from the equation, it would appear that there is no one to crush the head of the serpent. Now what? Genesis 4 and 5 starts to help train your focus in that direction. In Genesis 4 and 5, you get two parallel genealogies. In 4, you get the line of Cain. In 5, you get the line of another child, a man named Seth. There are seven generations uh, in Genesis chapter 4. It culminates with a man named Lamech, who sings this, what scholars call, Song of the Sword, where he's boasting about his sin. He like takes pride and joy in his killing. I killed a man for wounding me, a mere child for striking me. And then in Genesis chapter five, you get the line of Seth and it culminates in two different places. The seventh generation, we tried to line those up. The Enoch on Seth's side. Don't get weirded out by the names being some of the same. You got two branches to your family tree. Some folks got the same name. So we've got a later Enoch in Seth's line. He's the seventh generation that parallels Lamech. What are we going to be told about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5? Lamech is boasting in his sinfulness. Enoch, on the other side, walked with God. There's a juxtaposition. Here's the sinfulness of Cain's line and the faithfulness of Seth's line. And then it continues on, and there's a second peak in Seth's line with Noah. Noah is going to be upright and blameless among a wicked generation in which God ultimately looks down in the days of Noah and he says every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. And yet there's Noah, righteous and blameless in the midst of it. And then both genealogies end with the three children of those last members in the line. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal are born to Lamech. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are born to Noah. It's parallel. I want to say this carefully, but it's worth pointing out. When Genesis 3 talked about there being hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, uh, we mentioned that morning when we covered that passage that the serpent, Satan, isn't going to have kids so that there are little like children of Satan running around, but instead that the seed of the serpent would be those who choose to listen to and follow the serpent, disobey God, and the seed of the woman would be those who are people of the covenant, who are faithful to God and listen to his word. In Genesis 4 and 5, in these parallel genealogies, you start to see the separation. There's the line of Cain, who's going to boast in their sinfulness, and there's the line of Seth. It's going to culminate in Enoch, who walks with God, and Noah, who is righteous and blameless. What Genesis is saying here in this next section, four, five, six, and then we launch into the Noah account, is don't look for the serpent crusher among the line of Cain. Look for the one who will crush the serpent in the line of Seth. We'll work with Seth's lines next, next week, but let's jump into Cain's this morning. And even in the middle of all of the brokenness, there's goodness in a sense, that comes out of the line of Cain. And that's because God's common grace works through and on behalf of all of humanity. God's common grace to humanity is not only given to God's people, which would be Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament. His common grace works through and on behalf of all of humanity. I'm gonna read verses 17 to 22 again. 
Cain was intimate with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain Cain became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Adah and the other named Zalah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of of the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. Zalah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tubal-Cain's sister was named Namah. Cain has a son. He builds a city, and that should stand out right away. He was supposed to wander, right? That was his punishment. You're going to wander the earth and work the ground, and I'll give you a mark that will protect you so that no one will kill you. But in Genesis chapter 4, Cain doesn't exactly strike us as someone who's particularly sensitive to the word of the Lord. And so he does the opposite. Rather than wandering and trusting in the Lord's protection, he builds a city and settles down and says, I'll protect myself. Thank you very much. Now, before you rush to the idea that this city is like New York or Chicago or something like that, the gist is like a town, a settlement. From that moment forward, anyone who has ever lived in so much of a, as a village ought to be grateful and glad that Cain and his family started to figure out how to band together and live in pro- close proximity to one another because out of that city, village, settlement, town, is going to flow some really wonderful common graces from the Lord. Out of this settlement comes a proliferation and development of culture. By way of definition, this is how Sam Storms defines common grace. He says this, common grace as an expression of the goodness of God is every favor falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath. You don't die as soon as you sin. The mitigation of our sin natures. We are broken by sin, but you're not as sinful as you could be at every single moment. That's a gift of God's common grace. Natural events that lead to prosperity. Despite your sin, good stuff happens in your life that leads to good things. And all gifts that humans use and naturally enjoy. Anything you possess, anything you enjoy, anything you find comfort in, or anything that you generally take for granted in your daily life that isn't your salvation, that's a gift of common grace. And many of those common graces throughout history have come directly from people who may audibly laugh at the idea of God or Christianity or Jesus and his death on the cross. That starts with Cain's line here. And the Bible is intentional to point it out to us. But the whole thing is this mess of sin and brokenness out of which these common graces arrive. In verse 19, Lamech takes two wives for himself. Note how bleak the reality of this family's sin is. They're ignoring the direct word of the Lord. Cain does that twice. They're snuffing out the lives of image bearers. Both Cain and Lamech kill Lamech is taking God's marriage ordinance and warping it. This is the first recorded instance of polygamy in the Bible. It would appear as though within the line of Cain, the word of God means nothing and image bearers mean nothing. Both can be disregarded 
according to your uh, sensibilities or desires. We're supposed to read this whole thing and think, what in the world? Like, how did we get here? Everything was wonderful in Genesis chapter two. Sin entered in Genesis chapter three and it seemed as like seemingly harmless as eating a piece of fruit. Now here we are in Genesis chapter four and there's just like total disregard for humanity. I wanna make a quick note before we continue on about polygamy in the Old Testament. In modern day conversations about marriage and sexuality, it's common for those outside of the Christian faith to speak in and say, hey, why don't you miss me with all of your talk about gender and marriage and sexuality because your Old Testament is pro-polygamy. Like, how can you say anything about marriage and sexuality when this is what you hold up in the Old Testament? And on the surface, that seems like a fair critique. After all, Lamech and then Jacob, David, Solomon, among others, are going to have multiple wives and concubines. And so a surface reading of the Old Testament, would make, Old Testament would make it seem as though the Bible and its heroes are pro-polygamy and thus shouldn't be taken seriously when they talk about God's design for marriage and sexuality. But here's what I, I want to point out. This is something that you can like jot down for all of your Bible study in narrative books in the Bible. Description in the Bible is not prescription in the Bible. Just because the Bible narrates something does not mean that the Bible is giving permission for that thing, commendation of that thing, or recommendation of that thing. When we get narrative descriptions in the Bible, we should take three things into account. What's the immediate story or thing that's happening and what is the result of that immediate thing? Number two, how does that fit into the larger overarching narrative of the entirety of scripture? And number three, what are the explicit commands of scripture about this thing in other places? We bring all of that into one account. And so as it relates to polygamy, the picture you walk away with is that that act has disastrous impacts on people. It literally never works out in a positive way. The Bible describes instances of polygamy, particularly in the book of Genesis, and then ongoing in the Old Testament, and it's always a train wreck. It's bad for the women who are caught in it, think Hagar. It's bad for the children who are caught in it, think of the bitterness and jealousy that exists between Joseph and his siblings at the book of Genesis, and it's bad for the men who are caught in the midst of it, who sort of force it upon women and children. And so you ought to read the immediate narratives, see the whole of scripture, hear the explicit commands, and think to yourself, oh yeah, we should never do that. It's awful. It leads to pain. It's disobedient to the Lord. It's harmful to God's people and to humanity in general. Description isn't prescription. Oftentimes, narrative description is warning. In fact, one of the great apologetics to both the truth of the Bible and the truth of its moral claims is that scripture does not shy away from the brokenness of its Old Testament or New Testament heroes. If you were gonna write something and try to convince the whole world to follow along, you would paint every single hero in as positive a light as you could. And yet you read the book of Genesis and you're like, these people are messed up. Like this makes my family look pretty normal by comparison. 
Why is the Bible so honest of, about that? Why do we see these figures in the Old Testament and the New Testament in full display with all of their brokenness, all of their pain, all of the embarrassing realities of their life? Well, because the point was to never wholesale emulate those lives. The point is to see the shining, sparkling, perfect beauty of Jesus against the backdrop of all of that sin and say, there's the one. There's the one to emulate and to model my life after. Because against the bleak backdrop of human brokenness, the beauty of God's promises shines brightly. And what's his first promise? One will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And by the time you arrive at Jesus, you're so worn out by the brokenness that you say, ah, it's like a fresh drink of water. Here's the beauty of God's promise, shining brightly against the backdrop of all of that sin and brokenness. Back to Lamech. We're told about Lamech's three sons. He also has a daughter, but his three sons get little narrative descriptions. Jabal is the father of nomadic herdsmen. Jubal is the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. And then Tubal Cain, he uh, made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. Tending livestock, music in the arts, advancements in technology. Those are all great gifts of God's common grace to all of humanity. And yet they come through this incredibly almost celebratory, wicked and sinful family line from Cain. It's also worth noting that each of these common uh, gifts of common grace often themselves get distorted by sin. Like sin is so wrapped into the whole thing. That is human capacity to fill and subdue the earth. That's what God commanded humanity to do when he created humanity. As that increases, thanks to technological and cultural advancement, what you'll see throughout the Old Testament is that the human capacity and ambition for evil grows right along it. Every time you push forward something with technology, sin comes in and says, we can use this to harm more people. Every time... Art and culture advances. Sin comes in and says, we can use this for all sorts of wicked and broken things to fulfill all kinds of sinful desires within our broken hearts. Christopher Watkins says, culture and technology magnify and refine the human capacity for both good and evil, but they do not create those capacities. And so the animals that Israel raises, thanks to J-Ball's advancements in tending livestock, they're going to end up sacrificing those animals to gods other than Yahweh. You don't have to look very far to see the way that the arts can get warped by our sinful desires. And the very technological advances that help us extend life or produce better food or connect via the internet also lead to advances in the way that we harm one another. Whether that be physically, biologically, psychologically, or emotionally. Now all this culminates with Lamech in verses 23 and 24 singing his song of the sword. Listen, hear my voice, pay attention to my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man, literally a child, for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times, or your translation might say seven times, 70 times. He killed a man who merely wounded him. If Cain's protection from the Lord included vengeance seven times, Lamech's will be 77 times. Lamech looks at his wives and he says, look at me in all of my sin. Be proud of it. I sin boldly. I disregard image bearers with impunity. All you've got to do is merely wound me or strike me and I will kill you. Snuff your life out. 
Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says this succinctly and poignantly. He says, Lamech's taunt reveals the swift progress of sin. Where Cain had succumbed to it, Lamech exults in it. Where Cain had sought protection, Lamech seeks provocation. The disproportion of killing a child for a mere wound is the whole point of his boast. Here's the application I want to make on all of this. The whole of Scripture shows that God's promises prevail even against the backdrop of humanity's worst, most high-handed sin. The culmination of that is in Jesus. He comes in saying, I, I'm gonna, I can forgive sin. Eternal life is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The religious leaders of the day and the Roman authorities say, we can't have this, so we'll kill you. And God from heaven says, you try that. And their sin is the means by which his promise is actually fulfilled. So even against the most high-handed brokenness, the most obvious sin, the goodness of God's promises and purposes and providence still prevails. The whole of Scripture also shows us that among God's people, sin is a serious reality. There's sin in the world outside of God's people, but there's also serious sin in the lives of God's people. It's all a mixed bag. There's great grace coming through those outside of the people of God, and there's great sin coming from those within the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. And as followers of Jesus, we can and absolutely should be grieved by the sin around us. We should work through all available means to bring kingdom realities into our world and into our culture to the very best of our ability. And yet, typically, when it comes to cultural and technological usage, and I'm mostly talking about our current cultural societal moment, the conversations among Christians today tend to be about how to best separate ourselves from the common grace advancements of society today. That's sinful and broken. How do we get separated? Or we have no conversation about it. And on the other side of the spectrum is just total adoption of everything that society and culture gives to us with very little thinking about its impact on our hearts, our souls, and the world around us. But I think the biblical witness shows us that we don't have to be either total adoptionists or total separationists. There's a way forward in the midst of this for the glory of God and the good of humanity. Art, technology, culture, science is morally neutral. It's what we do with it that lends itself to either good or evil. Those things do not create evil within us, but it can magnify evil. Those things do not create goodness within us, though they can magnify goodness. We can be judicious users of all that God brings into the world through his common grace that works through humanity. Not only that, but we can be judicious users of the cultural, technological, artistic, scientific advancements of humanity in ways that actually magnify goodness and beauty and hope and joy and love and light and life out into a broken world. That's image bearing in a glorious way. In fact, for much of human history, since Jesus. It's been the people of God, 
motivated by the command of God to rule and to reign and to subdue this place, who have pushed humanity forward when it comes to the arts, to science, to mathematics, technology. A few examples. Some of the greatest composers of all time were followers of Jesus. Mendelssohn, Bach, Handel, Vivaldi. Followers of Jesus who said that there's something within my music and my art that can magnify the beauty of the Lord. And so I will be as good at those things as I possibly can be. Visual arts, Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, basically all of the Ninja Turtles <laughs> are followers of Jesus who said, God has given me this ability and I can produce something that displays the goodness and the love and the joy and the hope and the peace and the wonder of the gospel out into the world for the world to see. And so they wanted to be as good at that thing as they possibly could be in order to display the wonder of who God is to the world. Within the realm of the arts, I'm not judging your taste in film. But oftentimes today, there's like a, a Christian movie that comes out and the quiet conversation is, is it actually good? Like I know the story's probably fine and uplifting, but like the actual cinema quality, the acting, the production, like is it actually good? Those conversations would make Bach and Vivaldi and Leonardo da Vinci roll over in their grave. What do you mean is it actually good? We're image bearers. It should be the very best thing that's available out there in the world because we're producing something that displays the magnificence of the God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, who's huge and transcendent and independent and eternal, who's intimate and personal with humanity, who's promised us redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. What do you mean is it good? It should be the best. And then within science and technology, the reason that we know that the sun is the fixed point in the universe and the earth and the planets go around it is because Copernicus, a follower of Jesus, motivated by an understanding that God could be understood and his creative act could be understood, said, I want to I know. How does this place function? And it's not that the sun goes around the earth. It's that the earth goes around the sun. Galileo laid the groundwork for us to have modern telescopes, thermometers. Isaac Newton, Marconi, Kelvin, Francis Collins, who pushed forward the Human Genome Project. Those are followers of Jesus who said, we're supposed to rule and reign and subdue in the image of God for his glory. And the way that we do this is by figuring this place out and then pushing it forward that God might be more deeply understood and marveled at because of the way that he created this place. That's a beautiful way to engage with culture. And there's sin in there. And every time we push forward technology, some, someone sinful and broken uses that technology to harm or hurt people in a way that's grievous to the Lord and should be grievous to us, but it shouldn't stop us. And so if you're a high school or a college student, I don't know what conversation with your parents, but if you want to be an artist, you can make a living out of that. Be a really good one. If you want to be a scientist, 
You can make a living out of that. Be a really good one. If you want to be an author, you can make a living out of that. Be a really good one who tells stories of beauty and goodness and wonder and love and joy that capture the hearts of humanity and tap into something inside of us that says there's something better than the brokenness that exists around here. And we need that in every sector of human society. You really good with spreadsheets? Make spreadsheets that blow people's minds. I mean, like, the formulas are so good that people sit down with your spreadsheet and they're like, whoa, God must be real. Because your spreadsheet is so amazing. Amen. <laughs> Jamie's an accountant. <laughs> but a good one. <laughs> but here's the other side of that. If we can't use those items in that way, as individuals, when we come before certain pieces of technology or social media or art or film, music or whatever the case might be, and we find our heart tempted to use those things or to gratify our flesh rather than to glorify the Lord, then like Jesus said, it would be better to cut your hand off or gouge your eye out than to use that thing. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in God's people, sanctifying us so that we use these things for the glory of the Lord rather than the gratification of our sinful hearts. Amen? Amen. Paul has this prayer in Philippians chapter two. He says that his prayer is that these followers of Jesus in Philippi would live in a broken world, that they wouldn't complain, that they wouldn't grumble, that they wouldn't argue, that instead they would put on the attitude of Christ and walk in a way that's pure and blameless in a crooked generation in which they hold out the word of life and shine like stars in the universe. Why? Because against a backdrop of bleak human brokenness, the promises of God shine brightly, that in the midst of all the brokenness and all the sin that exists around us as we pursue all of the beauty and the wonder and the truth of the gospel and we push those things out into the universe, no matter how black the rest of it is, it shines brightly because that's just the way the gospel works, even in a dark and broken society. Last two verses here. Verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Adam and Eve give birth to a son that they named Seth and Eve provides the reason for that because God has given me another child in place of Abel. Now that's not in the emotional place of Abel. Right? Anybody that's a parent understands that you couldn't have one child killed and just swap in another one and feel totally fine. It's in the place of Abel in terms of the promise. Abel can't be the serpent crusher. Cain can't be the serpent crusher. Seth. Seth must be the one. But then we're told immediately that Seth has a son. He names that son Enosh. Ah, okay, so it's not, maybe it's not Seth. Maybe it could be Enosh. Or maybe it's just going to be through this line. And then we're told that it's at that time that people start to call on the name of the Lord. And that word for call has dual connotation. It means both prayer and proclamation. Whereas the line of Cain pushes forward aspects of society in positive ways, 
despite all of their sin and brokenness. Something about the birth and the line of Seth pushes forward aspects of human worship. Humanity had been relating to God. Cain and Abel were bringing sacrifices, but now they're praying and proclaiming, which naturally leads to the question, what are they praying about or what are they proclaiming? What are they calling upon the Lord for? And without over-speculating, I think if we've been tracking carefully, that answer should sort of speak for itself. They're praying that God would do what he promised in Genesis 3.15. Give us the serpent crusher. Where is he? He's not here. And they're proclaiming a promise that God made to send a serpent crusher. In all of the brokenness, amidst the boasting of taking human life and the warping of human sexuality, they start crying out, don't lose hope. A serpent crusher is coming. Don't give up. And so they're praying, God, please send the serpent crusher. And they're proclaiming, there's someone coming who's going to put an end to all of this, who's going to triumph over the sin and the brokenness and the ugliness. God promised. And they're calling upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, covenant God. He promised. He bound himself to us in these promises. And he will act as a result of those promises. Hang on. Don't lose hope. God, I'm losing hope. Send him. Send the serpent crusher. That's the great start of prayer and proclamation in the Bible, and that ought to be the continual rhythm of prayer and proclamation in our lives. Prayer is pleading the promises of God back to God. Put that another way. Prayer is pleading to God on behalf of the promises of God. And then proclamation is declaring the promises of God out into the world. And so brother or sister in Christ, drape every one of your prayer requests in the promises of God. Like You sit down and you've got your list of things that you want to pray about sickness or stressors or strife in relationships or difficulty at work. God gave you a promise for all of those things that one day... The serpent crusher would come and put an end to all of it. And so, yeah, we can want those things to be made right now, but we can also ask the Lord to help our hearts hold on until they're made right in full when Jesus comes back again. And brother or sister in Christ, from this day until the day you go to be with the Lord, speak until you are hoarse about the promises of God out into a broken world. Proclaim it. It's not just that God made promises that we're supposed to hang out with inside the church. It's that God made promises to a broken and a hurting and a lost world. And we're gonna pray to God and plead those promises to him and we're gonna proclaim those, God, or those promises out into a broken world. Blaise Pascal, another one of those old dead Christian guys who moved things forward, he says this, If people despise religion, don't just speak its truths. Make them wish that they were true. Speak the promises of God out into the world. It it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. It hurts to live here. It's hard. It's tiring. Bodies break down. Stuff disappoints you. The things that you thought were going to bring you joy ultimately end up bringing you pain. You want to speak powerfully in an evangelistic way out into society? Start declaring the promises of God and then say to people, don't you wish that were true? And then take them right to Jesus and say, it is. 
It can be now, and it will be for all of eternity one day. This place hurts, and all it ever does is let you down, and it will never fulfill all the longings of your heart. That's just reality. But let me tell you about something that can be true, and is true, and will be true. And let me take you to a man named Jesus and proclaim. Genesis 4 and 5 start to lay out for us the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. There will be a child of the covenant. It's not Cain. It's not Abel. Here's Seth. And as followers of Jesus, we cling to the child of the covenant, Jesus. And we proclaim the child of the covenant, Jesus. I want to do communion in a little bit of a different way this morning. Normally what we would do is we would pass out these elements and we would take them and then we would enter into a time of worship. I want to flip that here this morning. I want us to worship in response to this and then we're going to take communion as the very last thing we do in our service. What is it that we're supposed to do with all of this? Romans chapter 10, Paul picks up on this calling on the name of the Lord thing. And in Genesis 10, verse 11, he says this, for the scriptures say everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he goes on. How then can they call on him that they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What do we do with all of this from Genesis chapter four? We keep praying and proclaiming because there are people who need to call on the name of the Lord in prayer for their salvation. And how will they hear if we do not proclaim? Amen? Amen. Like this is such wonderful news that the serpent crusher has come. Not through Abel, not through Cain, ultimately through Seth. We call on him for salvation in prayer. We proclaim him that others might do the same. Yes? Yes. Let me pray and then we'll enter into a time of worship. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and sit before your word. God, we call on your promise. God, would you send Jesus again? God, we can cling to so many fulfilled promises in the person of Christ, and yet we still look forward to promises yet unfulfilled that he will come and put an end to all of the sin. And so we cling to your promises in prayer, and we proclaim your promises out into the world. And God, would you send him back? Would you give us steadfastness of heart until he returns? God, would you cause us to hope in the name of Jesus? Displaying who you are out into a broken world that others might see him and cling to him and call upon him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, would you stand?